Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. My question is, are we better off long term having him defeated through an election or having him removed from office by the Congress? And I think that's a really hard decision. But if we are always having a conversation where two of us sitting here can't agree about whether an election was a real election or not, whether the people knew something or they didn't know it, that's a really bad place for American democracy to be. And and I want to avoid that. I guess my point is we're already there. What that election shows to me is that our process is not working. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. everyone. On today's episode, we'll be talking the news in the first segment, including Joe Biden, because I know y'all are all waiting for me to talk more about Joe Biden. I can feel it. I can feel it. We were at an event this weekend and a questioner in the audience said Joe Biden's name and literally like five of the regular listeners in the audience looked at me <laughs> immediately. See, my head was going to burst into flames. In our main segment, we'll be following up on our Friday show, Five Things You Need to Know About Impeachment. We're going to talk about impeachment and our thoughts and our opinions on impeachment. And then to close out the show, we're going to be talking about 
What's on our mind outside politics, which is Avengers Endgame. Everybody get excited. There will be spoilers. Just prepare yourself. Now, I need you to do something for me, everyone, because what Sarah wants more than anything right now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is the swipe up feature on Instagram. And we need 10,000 followers to get the swipe up. And we know that way more people are listening to this podcast than following us on Instagram. It would be such a kindness if you would just hit pause, go over and follow Pantsuit Politics on Instagram. Let's give Sarah this gift that her heart desires. I could live my best life. Okay, so every morning in our Instagram stories, I do a news brief and I share several of the top news stories. If I could then say, hey, do you want to hear more about the Spanish elections? Swipe up. It would be amazing. Everybody would be having such a good time. Like there was this delightful article in the New York Times about South Korean women in their like 60s and 70s learning to read because they have less students. And so they've kind of opened it up to adults. Wouldn't have been so fun if I'd said, hey, at the end of the news brief, everybody, do you need a little piece of good news? Swipe up. But I can't because I'm missing those followers. Y'all, I just, I need it. I need it so bad. It's all I think about. Let's give this to Sarah, please. There are very few things in life that I would not rather do than do an Instagram story. It is not my thing. But but Sarah is doing some fantastic work over there. So be part of it. I thought your mousetrap Instagram story was pretty hilarious. Oh, thank you. We did have an intense mousetrap game at my house this weekend. It's a roller coaster. It's an emotional roller coaster, that mousetrap. All games are. It's just like, it's just little micro lessons in the world is not fair. That's what board games are for children. Hello, here's your micro lesson in things don't always work out. This is a good, this is good practice. It's good practice. The world is not fair may be an unfortunate but evergreen Mm. opening to the first block of our show where we talk about news of the week. And we want to start today by expressing our deep sorrow for what happened in Poway, California. It's a little bit north of San Diego at Congregation Shadbad on Sunday, where Lori Kay, who was 60 years old, jumped between an active shooter and Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein. Lori was killed. The rabbi was shot in the hand and has permanent damage to his hand. And two others were injured, including an eight-year-old girl and her uncle, who was 34 and trying to protect her. They have both been discharged from the hospital, thank goodness. The rabbi has been on lots of national media outlets and delivered a weekly message. I think this has been an incredible story to watch because the rabbi has been so vocal. He did a really long news conference. He's been doing a lot of media. He talked about his almost hour-long conversation with President Trump, which he described as generous and with both President Trump's words and time. And so, like, he's been giving such emotional testimony about what happened. We know a lot of really heartbreaking details, like Lori Kay's husband was doing CPR on her and then realized it was his wife. He's a physician and passed out. Like just all these details that lend to the the humanness of the story, which I think is so powerful because then it doesn't just become one more story. You know, like it doesn't, it, we're not as able to easily dismiss this. And I think that the way he's been speaking so emotionally about this has been a real a real gift, honestly. I think so, too. And a lot of people are trying to say, hey, let's put this in context, because much of the reporting has said that the shooter acted alone here. And Deborah Lipstadt, who we had on the show um, to talk about an- anti-Semitism a few weeks ago, said this on Twitter today, and I thought it was a succinct way to capture what Sarah and I have been thinking about 
She wrote, I keep hearing that the shooter in San Diego acted alone. He did not. He was inspired, supported by, and egged on by white supremacist websites. No one may have given him instructions, but this is not a lone actor. I think that is so essential to this conversation. I thought the same thing when they kept saying he acted alone. I was just like, no, that's not true at all. I don't even know. Have we all decided what it means to act alone or act as a part of the group. It feels like that was part of the conversation surrounding the attacks in Sri Lanka. Okay, well, ISIS has claimed responsibility, but what does that mean? I mean, I'm not really sure we all decided or we have a good definition or framework to talk about whether or not someone acted alone. But I think she is 100% correct. At this point in human history, to describe anyone who acts in this way out of a sense of white supremacy is not acting alone. That's the same separation that we've talked about in terms of what happens online versus in real life and how those two things just keep coming closer and closer together. Because when you think about the inspiration and support and encouragement that this shooter received, it all happened on the web. Does that make it not real? Of course not. Mm -hmm. It has very real consequences. Mm -hmm. We saw this in reporting about the mail bomber. Did you see the story, Sarah, where he said that when he first started attending Trump rallies, it was like getting addicted to a drug and finding this community around him. That that felt like, okay, I have something. I'm part of this and I'm against that. And the world makes sense to me in this way now. I think we really have to come to grips with the fact that, yes, we want to respect free speech. We want to protect the Internet and its openness. But it is not a separate thing from living in the real world. And and we've got to find a way to come to grips with that. And I also think we have to find a way to come to grips with our country's relationship with anti-Semitism. We, we just keep getting messages over and over that this is a problem. History tells us that when this becomes a problem, it escalates quickly and we need to take it seriously. And, and we have to do that. And can I add something else that I know is difficult, but I hope won't be truly controversial? The shooter is 19 years old, okay? As we're having a conversation about raising the smoking age to 21, I'm having trouble seeing the conversation surrounding a 19-year-old as a man, the shooter, that 19-year-old man. To me, that is an oxymoron. And so I think as we have these conversations about this ideology and we look at its appeal to teenage boys then we need to think about why is it appealing? What's going on there? How can we prevent that particular very susceptible age group from falling prey to this type of ideology? There's some really interesting reporting that this was heartbreaking for two communities. This shooter belonged to a very prominent family in a local Presbyterian congregation. And then they met and said, what what happened? Like, how did he abandon our values? And, And I think that is important too. And I think that thinking through how somebody so young could do something so horrific is a really important part of the conversation. On the more hopeful and encouraging side of this, it has been beautiful to read statements, not only from Rabbi Goldstein, but other rabbis. And one said in the L.A. Times, I think this is Rabbi Brisky. He said the Hasidic philosophy teaches us to think of what we are needed for most, even as the most horrendous thing is happening around us. Mm. I am a rabbi. What is my job right now? It is to comfort, to pray, to sustain. And that just really struck me. If we all ask, what is my job right now? 
I think that it gives us a lot of good information about how to act in the world. So I really appreciate the leadership from this faith community in the midst of what has to be terrifying. There's not a great way to pivot from this kind of discussion about tragedy and horror and the big lessons our society needs to grapple with to 2020 politics. But 2020 politics are being informed by everything that's happening. And we know that everyone is interested in Sarah's thoughts on Joe Biden's official entry into the 2020 race. He is in Pennsylvania this week holding a kickoff in front of union groups. And Sarah, I'm interested in your perspective on this because what I am feeling from the Biden campaign is that he just squarely wants to be the Democrats version of Make America Great Again. It's about Mm. the middle class and labor unions and kind of resurrecting a version of America that once existed in some form and trying to add inclusion and, and like making some other progressive statements as a part of that overall vision. So here's the thing. I feel like he is trying to run, oh, I don't know, maybe the two previous presidential campaigns he has engaged in for another time. It is not that I don't think economic issues are of extreme importance. I do. I think that's one of the most appealing aspects of Elizabeth Warren's campaign. But there is an updated version of that. There's a totally different way that the Democratic Party and voters talk about this, think about this, and run campaigns. I think the way that he is still a very corporate candidate is incredibly problematic, considering the the current state and definitely the direction of the Democratic Party. I've had conversations with Democrats on a local level that Labor unions are essential. I think labor unions and the decrease in participation in the labor unions, and it's not just an opinion, there are statistics to pack this up, is a huge piece of economic inequality. However, they have decreased in participation. They are struggling. So the idea that they are going to prop up your candidacy, like all these labor endorsements and labor rallies, Not only do I not think it's indicative of our current reality, I don't think they're up for it. You know what I mean? Like, I think they're struggling enough that they can't be the organizing energy of your campaign. The participation is too far down and they're having to build their own membership, much less turn around and say, prop up my candidacy. So it just feels dated. And on the most pragmatic level, I just don't think it's going to work in 2019, like dragging us all back to a previous version of democratic politics when we have a really exciting version full of female candidates and diverse candidates and small donors, candidates funded almost entirely by small donors and people who understand that how you talk about Anita Hill is really important and his approach feels even more dated than before he announced We'll see. I don't know how it's going to turn out. He raised over $6 million in 24 hours. He is certainly the most experienced person in this field. I mean, this point in the nightly nuance we heard for years, we're still hearing about how experienced Hillary Clinton was as a candidate and how important that should be. And Joe Biden has that. You know, he has decades of public service in a variety of roles. I think he's going to appeal 
to some people. And I think this is a maybe healthy fight for the Democratic Party to have. I don't think it needs to be a fight in the sense of we all hate each other when it's over. But I think the conversation about where the party wants to be on these issues is is a good one and important. And I'm kind of interested to watch the debates to see how it all plays out. So following on that, Democratic voters, uh, meet me at the mic. Okay, actually, let me change that. Democratic women voters, meet me at the mic. The AP has this story. Nominate a woman. Some Democratic women aren't so sure. Iowa voters sent a record number of women to the legislature during the last year's midterm. Women won two of the state's most competitive U.S. House races, and a woman was elected governor for the first time. Yet across Iowa, there's a palpable anxiety among some Democratic women about nominating a female candidate to face off against President Donald Trump next year. I want to be for a woman, but it's just hard when you see a lot of other people not supporting women yet. I feel that America's just not there yet, said Wendy McVeigh, a 20-year-old junior at Iowa State University. Okay, I'm going to remain calm. And here is what I would like to encourage all Democratic women to do. I understand the fear and anxiety and trauma we are all recovering from from 2016. It was hard. We all got burned. It was awful. Get it. We all know that. Okay. We don't want to act out a place of fear. That is never a good approach. So here is what I would encourage everyone to do. If you are a person asking yourself, is the country ready for a woman president? I want you to just ask yourself if I am ready for a woman president. And if the answer is yes, that is all that matters. And if you hear another woman say, I don't know if the country is ready for a woman president, then just look at her and say, are you ready for a woman president? Because if you are, that's all that should matter. Let's just scale it back and not have to carry the feelings or emotions for every person a little anxiety ridden by a female candidate and just worry about ourselves because here's my hot take. We're the majority of the voters. And so if we can just get our heads around the fact that it doesn't matter if every single person in the United States is ready for a woman president. It matters if we are. And if enough of us are, which I believe that we are, that's all that matters. Let's just worry about ourselves for once in human history, women, and just focus on that question. Are you ready for a woman president? If you are and you like one of the many options we have available to us in the Democratic primary, then let's let that be the end of the conversation. And AP, stop running these dumbass stories. I'm really surprised by the sexism and coverage of the women running this time. I shouldn't Mm. be, but I just thought that we had learned something. There was an editorial in USA Today about how Kamala Harris owning a handgun was disqualifying for the writer of this editorial, even though... Other candidates in the Democratic primary who are men own handguns. Kamala Harris was a prosecutor. I think it's fair for Kamala Harris to own a handgun. Now, if you want to have a conversation in the Democratic Party about whether any of your leaders can own guns, you can do that. I think you're going to lose if that becomes a litmus test. But I just thought, wow, like singling out Kamala Harris on this is crazy to me. There's been lots of coverage about how she's not specific enough. I'm sorry. She's running against Beto O'Rourke. Where are the think pieces about how Beto O'Rourke? I mean, it just I feel like we aren't learning as quickly as we need to be learning here. I'm not a Democrat. I can't vote in the primary. But I, I do think, Sarah, your point is very well taken that 
we as women can get really consumed with the whole narrative around viability. And we forget that we're the people who decide if something is viable Mm -hmm. or not. We are the committee. We are the committee. On the Republican side, that's how I feel about Bill Weld. It's super easy to say there's no way he can get the nomination. Well, there is no way he can get the nomination if we all decide that and choose not to vote for him. So if we want better, then we just have to do better. If you are interested in more conversation about the sexism and media coverage, definitely tune in on Friday. I'm going to be talking with Lauren Leader. We had a great conversation about women running for office, how women running for office is really not the end all, the end of this process, but just the beginning. And so I think y'all are going to really like that conversation. Before we turn our attention to impeachment, I want to mention a little skirmish happening right now between the administration and the House of Representatives. Actually, there are many skirmishes happening. Yeah, I was fixing to say, how many little skirmishes does it take before we acknowledge that this is a battle going on right now? It is a full-on test of the mettle, I think, of Democratic leaders in the House and what our court system is going to be willing to do to navigate a fight between two co-equal branches of government. So the latest installment after many public statements about how the Trump administration is going to resist every subpoena, they're going to encourage witnesses not to testify because the Mueller report has been issued and it's all over. And the House of Representatives saying we will subpoena everyone then and we will use every power at our disposal to get people's butts in the seats to testify because it is very much not over. The latest round is that the attorney general, William Barr, is threatening not to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee because he doesn't like the format that the committee has proposed. In addition to the usual five-minute rounds of questioning, Jerry Nadler and company would like a 30-minute round for questioning from staff lawyers. This has happened before in 1987 about the Iran-Contra scandal and in 1973, particularly about the CIA's potential involvement in Watergate. The purpose of those 30-minute rounds is to have someone more skilled than a member of Congress do the questioning. And William Barr said that Congress called him to testify. He agreed to testify before Congress. So members of Congress, not lawyers, should do the questioning. And Jerry Nadler said, this is our committee, and we will be telling you how we are going to run it. And we have asked you to be here, and you need to be here. And if you do not come, we will subpoena you. When you said testing the mettle of Democratic leaders, let me say on the record, I'm very comfortable with the mettle of Jerry Nadler. I think that he is up for this task. He's really trying to navigate this wisely. I think he was really angry last week when Carl Klein, who was a kind of head of personnel in the Trump administration, did not appear in violation of a subpoena because the president told him not to go. Carl Klein's lawyer said, listen, there are two co-equal branches of government giving us contradictory orders, so we're going to follow the orders of the one this guy works for. And I understand that. Carl Klein is the person who was supposed to testify about security clearances being granted against the advice of the intelligence community and specifically about Jared Kushner's security clearance. He's also the person who allegedly retaliated against the whistleblower in pretty demeaning and awful ways. 
And so Jim Jordan of Ohio got involved to prevent a contempt vote against Carl Klein. That's what Nadler's next move was, to schedule a contempt vote for violating that subpoena. Jim Jordan has arranged for Carl Klein to voluntarily testify in front of the committee now. And so I think it's good that Nadler said, "Okay, I accept that. I want you here. And I'm not just going to do the contempt vote to embarrass you. And so we'll see what he ends up working out with the attorney general. But I think his experience, Nadler's experience, is coming into play in such important and really crucial ways right now. We're going to move on and compliment the other side. I wanted to compliment Richard Luger, a longtime 30-plus year senator from Indiana who passed away recently. In his New York Times obituary, I read this paragraph and I thought, Everyone should aim for this to be written about them when they die. It says his independence frequently annoyed many Republicans. He was a Republican, both in Washington and Indiana, especially later in 1986 when he helped lead a successful effort in Congress to override Mr. Reagan's veto of legislation imposing trade and economic sanctions on the white-led government of South Africa over its policies of apartheid. So he was a real leader with regards to foreign policy as a senator. And I just thought, if you're a senator, that's what they should write about you. Your independence really annoyed your party when you pass away. He was highly admired and respected, has a great legacy. And so I am complimenting Senator Luger. I would like to just change the opening of our show if I could. This is Sarah from the left and Beth, who is annoyingly independent. I think that would really (laughs) change the flow of email that comes to me. I would like to compliment Pennsylvania Democrats and specifically members of the Legislative Black Caucus in Pennsylvania. They are working on policing reforms via five different bills. And it seems like the way they're working on this is really engaging the community. They talked about children being involved in this process. They talked about how policing is a dangerous job and they don't want to discount the danger to law enforcement. And what they're really looking for is more clarity because they feel that Pennsylvania law right now is too ambiguous in a way that hurts communities and hurts police as well. So the five bills they're looking at would modify definitions in statutes about the use of deadly force. It would reform interdepartmental police hiring by requiring that law enforcement agencies keep detailed personnel records on an officer leaving a job. The bills would appoint a special prosecutor to investigate any incident of deadly force involving a law enforcement officer, reform the certification and decertification process for police officers, and address arbitration regarding matters of discipline for police. I don't know everything about these bills, but what I've read so far, it sounds like they really would be an advantage for police officers in addition to the communities that they're policing in. And so I'm just really impressed with this work. The bills are a long way from passage, but I hope that if you're in Pennsylvania, you'll take note of this effort and consider supporting it. Next up, we are going to talk about impeachment. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth that makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. 
You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. As I was doing my research on impeachment, here's something that really struck me before we dive into the specifically Trump conversation about impeachment. We talk about it as if it has not happened very often. And that is true. It only happened twice over 100 years apart, technically. But I feel like in my lifetime, I grew up understanding that The almost impeachment of Richard Nixon was very recent and very important history. So I feel like we should kind of count that, even though I know he wasn't technically impeached. The impeachment of Bill Clinton obviously was huge and historical. And now, 20 years later, we're having a very real conversation to the point where members have filed resolutions calling for the impeachment of President Trump. And to me... Historically, that feels like a ramp up. That feels like, you know, I didn't live in the 1800s and the early 1900s, so I don't know how often it came up. But in our research, I didn't find like during this period, there were lots of resolutions filed against this president and this guy got close. Like it just feels like in the past 50 years, there has been a bit more impeachment overall or at least impeachment talk. Well, and we found that there were numerous impeachment resolutions filed against the George W. Bush administration, Mm -hmm. which I think is Mm -hmm. further to your point that we are more frequently asking 
what Congress's role is. And what's interesting about that is as we have more talk about Congress possibly usurping elections through the impeachment Mm -hmm. process, as is their constitutional responsibility when high crimes and misdemeanors and treason and bribery are on the table, we're having that conversation against the backdrop of a weak Congress, of a historically weak legislative Mm -hmm. branch. In almost every way, Congress has delegated its authority to executive branches. It's given away its power to courts. Now Congress views itself, I think the Senate views itself almost exclusively as being there to confirm judges. Certainly that's Mitch McConnell's view. And so how interesting that we are thinking more about Congress in a way that would be the, the biggest flex of its powers when it's unwilling to exercise its power on the things that are exclusively within its purview. That's such a good point. I was really thinking about it in terms of partisanship, but I think you're right. I mean, I think you see, particularly post-FDR, then you see Johnson, you see people really expanding the power of the executive branch and simultaneously see, because like you said, instead of exercising their power in different ways and really checking the executive branch, they're almost always just rubber stamping this expansion of power and not doing their jobs. And so when they're not doing their jobs, the stakes of the executive branch, and as we're increasingly seeing the stakes at the judiciary branch, get higher and higher and higher. And when the stakes are so high, well, then we're going to have to press the red button more often, right? I think you're exactly right about that. I've been listening to the editors, the National Reviews podcast, and they've had this ongoing conversation about the Mueller investigation and a tension between the men on that show. And it's it's always a roundtable of men. The tension between the men on that show has been a group of them thinking that the Mueller investigation never should have been undertaken within the Department of Justice because it's Congress's job to investigate that stuff. Mm. And another group, mostly David French, saying, right, but Congress delegated that power. Congress gave that power away to the FBI. So under our current structure, you may be right about what should be. But when you think about what is, this is the only place for this to happen because these are the people with the tools to do it. And I think it's such an interesting and important conversation just looking at the whole table and how Congress has positioned itself as both weak and with the potential to exercise this really remarkable power given to it that is to be used only in extreme circumstances. Well, and as applied specifically to President Trump, I think you are seeing that conversation about Congress and their role playing out in those skirmishes about investigations and who's going to come testify and subpoenas and are we going to actually obey the document request. And listen, they didn't invent this. Every president slow walked congressional requests for documents and congressional investigations and congressional hearings. But they're really taking the ballgame to a new level, which is an expansion of executive power. And I think what you can see, or at least what I see pretty clearly right now, unless I'm missing something important, is that it has been bad for President Trump that Republicans rubber stamped for the first two years of his presidency. Absolutely. Because if Republicans had said, yes, we have a Republican in the White House, but oversight is still our job. I don't think we would be at this tipping point of Democrats having to investigate everything. Some of these questions may have been put to bed 
some of the financial questions about the president Mm -hmm. may have been put to bed. If Republicans had not been so clearly partisan and had just functioned like a co-equal branch, I think the president would be in a stronger position than he is today. Absolutely. I mean, wouldn't you rather (laughs) the friend the friendly team investigate you? Wouldn't you rather have but I mean, would it would it have mattered? Would people have said their bias? Would it have been Attorney General Barr's take on the Mueller report? Well, yeah, it's your guy giving us the take. It's your guys giving the investigation. And so it doesn't really matter, specifically with regards to President Trump and impeachment. You know, the big question is inside the Democratic Party right now. Should we go towards impeachment or should we let the electoral process play out? And I think I totally understand that. And the first time I I remember hearing Pete Buttigieg say that, I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. That makes sense. But the problem post Mueller report is we have an electoral process that's been violated that a lot of people don't have trust in, me in particular. So why should I trust that process to be fair, to be just, to have the right outcome when repeatedly it has not, in particular in my lifetime. Do you trust that the process in Congress would be fair? I least trust that it would be pragmatically political in a way that is transparent in a way, as opposed to the emotional manipulation of millions of voters, some of which I struggle with (laughs) trusting to make decisions about the future of our country, if I'm just being brutally honest. I feel like an impeachment proceeding as just a purely political question and a narrative that even if it's a political question as a result, it would be a transparent sort of examination of the moral, ethical, legal, political violations of the administration, very public facing way. Yeah, I have more faith in that process than I do. You know, do I would I rather see us have the discussion about whether President Trump should be held responsible for his actions in a Senate hearing between House managers and the administration versus Facebook ads manipulated to people's socioeconomic, racial, gendered identities? Yeah, I'm going to go. I want to go with the hearing. It's all a little bit circular, though, because if we can't have confidence in our elections, then all of the incentives that motivate those actors in the House and the Senate are tied to that, right? And so I think the most important thing that leaders, like real leaders in in both parties can be doing right now is talking about how we can restore confidence in our elections. A friend of mine reached out after our last Tuesday conversation when you brought up, Sarah, that you really want it acknowledged that Russian interference probably change the outcome of the election. And my friend said, you know, I think part of what Sarah is is looking for is assurance that her fellow Americans were influenced in a way that they, to act in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise, because we kind of need that to restore some trust amongst ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I think that was a really good point. And that is the point that has kind of had me in knots about this conversation. Because in a way, I think part of America really does, and maybe all of us need this, we just don't all want it. But I think part of America at least really wants this 
public, transparent hearing process where Congress now does the Mueller report in open court, right, where we see the evidence and we hear testimony and we really air out what got us here. And I can see the value in that process in terms of building greater trust in our institutions. And then I also can see the value in saying we really need to hear this from each other as Americans. We really do need to just take this where we are in the calendar because we're so close to an election. We don't need a group of senators removing this president from office. We need the voters to do that. And that will restore trust among us. And as I think about that question, what would help us have more faith in our elections and have more faith in each other? Because I think those are the two just key components to where our democracy is right now. I really struggle with what the right answer is. I feel like based on our positions about the Electoral College, we are arguing the opposite of how we should. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm making the point of we should trust the elites and let them do it. The process would be better if we trust the elites, which is basically why they set up the Electoral College. We can't trust the masses. We need people that can take the reins and do this in a more transparent, rational way. And... Getting rid of the Electoral College, which is basically we need to restore trust in elections and people need to feel like they're the ones being trusted with this decision. Don't you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like you and I should be arguing the opposite way based on that. They're kind of inconsistent with our stances on the Electoral College. Here's the thing I like about us, though. We don't put consistency as a value in and to itself. I think we can have that paradox in how we view things. Because thinking that the Electoral College has an important role to play doesn't mean you think we shouldn't have elections and that what the will of the people says is unimportant. Just like thinking that having this process play out in Congress doesn't mean that you think the will of the people is unimportant. So I hear what you're saying, and I think that's a really interesting point. But it all matters. You know, this is what we try to say all the time. Like, All these different considerations have a seat at the table. And I think it should be a hard call. This should be a hard call. That's what the Constitution contemplates, that it's a hard call when to invoke this extraordinary power that Congress has. We often say, as we, you know, brought up with Virginia and the crisis they seem to just have ridden out, (laughs) apparently, will the decision increase or decrease trust in the institution? And I do think it's a fair question to ask. Reading the Mueller report, understanding the actions of this administration, will it increase or decrease trust in the process if there are no consequences for Donald Trump? What happens if he wins? You know, we can put this to electoral question, but we need to ask ourselves, what happens if he does all these things and he wins re-election. Where are our institutions then? I don't know the answer to that question. I do think that figuring out exactly what we're talking about as it pertains to impeachment is important. So my perspective, and I have a feeling we might differ on this, Sarah, is that part one of the report where Mueller details everything that led up to the 2016 election, all the contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia... I do not like what I see there. I think it describes a greedy, incompetent, naive, 
narcissistic group of people unqualified to run a lemonade stand mounting a presidential campaign in a way that was not at all focused on public service. And I don't think it describes impeachable offenses. Part two of the report is where I start to see abuse of power and abuse of the office such that I think impeachment would be appropriate. So it's not that you don't see crimes. It's that you don't think that they are related enough to the office served to make them impeachable. I have to think about that. I mean, I I see problems. I don't know that I see crimes in part one. I think part one probably came to correct conclusions. I see activity that probably should be criminal. When I'm thinking about just the president, so I mean, lots of people got charged with crimes, right, right, right. around that. So yes, I think okay. there were crimes. When I so think about part what, two. what Donald Trump did, did he commit crimes in part one? Probably not. Did he exercise the judgment that is befitting the office? No. Do I see someone who's manifestly unfit to do what he's doing now? Of course. So I I look at part one and I say, if the Republican Party reads this and still wants him to be their nominee in the next election, we are even more lost than I thought we were. But I don't think I see impeachable offenses in part one. It is part two where I see that real connection to abusing the power of the office that I think does describe impeachable offenses, even if it doesn't describe chargeable obstruction offenses, which I think it would if he weren't the president. If it describes impeachable offenses, then why shouldn't we go through with impeachment? Well, the the place that I'm struggling is learning that historic argument among the framers about whether Congress should be able to do this or not, given that voters have an opportunity to do it. And when I think about where we are, and I know it's going to annoy people like, oh, it was too early to impeach and then it's too late to impeach. I get it. I get how frustrating that is. At the same time, we are right here on the cusp of an election. And I don't think the choices are no accountability for the president or removal from office. We're not even talking about the political reality that the Senate is highly unlikely to remove him from office. But just looking at where we are and the fact that an election is coming and the fact that Congress has many avenues to hold this president accountable, at least to kind of paralyze his presidency until the next election, right? They can stall the legislative agenda. They can stall appointments to different offices. They can do all this oversight and investigation. I think maybe that is more consistent with what our Constitution envisioned because we have this opportunity to take it to the public. I mean, I don't understand. We're not really right there. We're like a year and a half away. That's a long time. I mean, if it, I, would t- I think I would take that point better if it was May 2020, but it's not. I mean, it's a year away. And I think here's a question. If he's impeached, let's say he's impeached and he is found guilty and removed from office in June or July of 2020. What's to stop him from running? Is there any legal rule or precedent that if you are removed from office as president, you can't run again? The Senate would have to make that call. Sometimes the Senate can say you cannot run for office again. That's what they do with judges. But if the Senate didn't say that, he could run again. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I think it is far away. And I think if we're talking about the importance of impeachable offenses being committed. You know, we're always so worried about the damage he's doing to the norms. 
And I do think that that is one of the most, you know, politicizing the census, for example. It's one of the biggest impacts of this presidency. And I think to just to fall into that trap and say, where there's no hard line, there's no objective measure here. And I mean, it's it stinks that impeachment, which is a very political process, is our own. I mean, I think that's the paradox we're running up against is we want an objective way to say there are lines a president should not cross. And the founders. Who were not of infinite wisdom, just want to put that on the record, gave us a political process to do that with. It's just so tricky with this president. This is a place where I feel like his strategy of throwing so much out works for him because I want the American people as voters to say that family separation is a line that should never have been crossed. That's not impeachable. But to me, as a policy matter, I need to know that the public believes that. That's really important to me. And so when we talk about impeachment with this president, it's kind of like what happened with Bill Clinton. You know, you were describing how the public decided this wasn't about obstruction of justice or perjury. This was about sex. Right. And with this Mm -hmm. president, there's so much. What would it be about? You know, with all these investigations, what are they about? I lose the thread sometimes. I think they're important. And as I dive back into it, I find the thread again and I think, oh, right, that, you know, the financial matters are important because he's filing reports with the Office of Government Ethics. And is he telling the truth in those reports? That matters. That's a big deal. But gosh, it's like such a needle in this giant haystack of things. What would the impeachment of Donald Trump be about? I feel like one of the procedural conclusions we could make from the Mueller report that would make me happy, would make me feel like we found an objective way to say this is wrong and we will not cross this line again without it being a purely political process is I do not think we should continue the policy of the Justice Department that you cannot indict a sitting president. I think that is a terrible rule. And while I understand the origin of it, that we don't want political investigations and criminal investigations to be used as a political tool to slow down administration. First of all, too late. Second of all, the idea that you can't commit a crime because your president is just the antithesis of the idea of rule of law. I think it needs to go. I think it needs to go. And this this whole body of legal research and scholarship that says because you're the president that makes it okay. If we've learned nothing in this last 50 years of Congress abdicating its power and the expansion of executive authority and power, it should be that. It should be, no, that's not true. Just because your president doesn't make it right. And so let's abandon that. I think I agree with you. Let me throw out a hypothetical that illustrates why I would like to think more about this. And I think that needs to be wrapped in a package of laws, perhaps. The president certainly could commit crime, and I think there are certain crimes that a president should absolutely be held accountable for while in office. I want to imagine an alternate universe where Hillary Clinton's emails are still being investigated. Now, everybody just settle down because I know that brings up a lot of emotion, and I totally understand it. You should have done a trigger warning for that. Yes. But let's imagine, okay? Let's imagine that more emails come in and that James Comey doesn't hold his press conference and a whole other variety of factors come together and Hillary Clinton wins the presidency while there is an ongoing investigation of the emails. And shortly after she is elected, the FBI reaches a different conclusion and decides to charge in association with those emails. So if you look at that 
picture and you think, should President Clinton be able to be charged while in office? I would argue that there needs to be a congressional vetting process from the DOJ. So if the DOJ has recommended charges against the president, that something else needs to happen. There needs to be another step before the president gets charged. Yeah, but then why? how are we not in the same spot where we're stuck in a political process with a Congress that won't do its job? I think we are. I think there's no way to avoid trouble when Congress isn't functioning well. I, I almost think that's what everything comes back to right now, because the individuals in the Department of Justice are always going to be human beings. And people in the executive branch generally are always going to be human beings. And courts are always going to be limited in what they can do for us. And so I really think the lesson for me of the past couple of years is that holding our legislators to a higher standard is essential if we want the United States to continue to function. Here's where I'm struggling. I'm getting a little philosophical. The problem for me with that is that it creates this other universe of rule of law. We have rule of law for all the normal people in the world, and then we have a separate system of rule of law for anyone who's put themselves in the role of public service. And then all of a sudden, we can't trust anybody but the other elected people in public service to act as the criminal justice process for them. Like, I just, I'm not cool with that. Like, I think we're back in the trying to hate the players, not the game. Yes, they've abdicated their responsibility. But the process is always going to be political. And the people in Congress are always going to be political players. And so it's like why we don't want judges elected, right? Because it's not a good mix. And so if you're still a human being, even if you're president, even if you're a member of Congress, the rule of law still applies to you. The criminal justice process should still apply to you no matter what. And I don't know why we need an extra step in the process because they're public servants. I think it's because the incentives around charging public servants are different. We believe everybody in that process is political now, right? We talk about Supreme Court justices as though they're wearing their partisan jerseys. But I don't believe that about the FBI. I hope that you're right about that. But our president right now tells people that the FBI is inherently partisan, right? We, ha- I mean, we have a trust issue. I agree with you. I, I think the Mueller report is, above all, a reassuring document about fairness and professionalism within the Department of Justice. We don't have that confidence as American people. And I, I just do think that the executive of our country needs a layer, not that they're never charged, but that someone needs who is politically accountable needs to be in the mix deciding whether that charge goes forward or not. Because if you have a charge that can't be proven, what happens? What kind of decisions can a president make while being prosecuted? If you're criminally charged while you're the president, do we automatically commence impeachment in proceedings or do we have to await the outcome? I mean, this is just really complicated. And I think that's why, to me, even though I feel there is a strong case for impeaching and removing this president based on the way he used his office to impede the Mueller investigation and based on the way that he has held the power of pardon out to influence witnesses. Like, I think he has done things that absolutely abuse what he is supposed to do. And yet I still think this should be hard 
because it is a it is a big deal if you start to roll it forward and think what the next generation does. If we've accelerated in terms of talking about impeachment over the last few presidencies, if we start actually impeaching, how much does that accelerate? But I'm not talking about impeachment. I'm talking about criminal charges, the decision that we can't indict a sitting president. And to me, if you'd gone back to the founding fathers and said, who we all have decided should be the beginning and end of many of these conversations, which I disagree with, but let's just pretend that's what we're operating out of. If you'd gone back to them and said, hey, you have this, we're having a lot of complicated conversations about the political process for removing a president from office. Do you also think they should never be able to be accountable to the systems of justice if they commit an actual crime? I mean, to me, that sounds an awful lot like monarchy. You can't commit a crime when you're president. Sounds a lot, awful lot like if you're the king, you can't commit a crime. What's the difference? I mean, I'm not even talking about impeachment. I don't care if you commit a crime and stay president. I mean, I do, and I think most people would either. But the idea that we're all operating in this universe where because you're the president, you can't commit a crime is outrageous to me. And what sort of like the original sin that got us all started in this mess. I'm not arguing that you can't commit a crime. I am arguing that before you are charged and before your time becomes consumed as a criminal defendant, we need to think carefully about what procedure is in place to make sure that that's not just wielded as a political weapon. And we need to think about what that means for a president. Because if I'm a criminal defendant while I'm serving as the president, what kinds of decisions should I not make? What kind of influences on my decision making exist? What kind of opportunity does that create for foreign powers? I mean, it's a that's a big deal. There, That is opening a universe that we need to think through. I see it, and I understand how we got here. But I think at this point in American history, we should say it's very hard and complicated to think how this process should work. But I think we should all acknowledge at this point that the idea that the risk outweigh the benefit is no longer true. Is that just because it would be hard and complicated to figure out doesn't mean we should continue to live in this fiction where an indicted president can't commit crimes. I agree with you about that. I just think we need to be careful about it. I think there is a host of legislation that needs to occur following the Mueller report. If it's not a crime today to share opposition research between a foreign adversary and a presidential campaign, I think that should be a crime. Let's make it one. Let's write a law about that. Let's clarify all of the things that we are uncomfortable with that just took place through legislation. And I think clarifying, taking this Department of Justice guidance and having Congress speak on it is a really good idea. And it's an it goes on the list of things that should happen. I guess I just think at this point, when we're talking about, oh, what would it look like? How would the process change if he or she were indicted and they would have to deal with investigations and being a criminal defendant. I mean, that's just the water they drink now, right? I mean, that's just the air you breathe if you're president, if you're especially if you have a Congress of the opposing political party. That is something you're already dealing with and you're already making decisions based on that as evidenced by volume two of the Mueller report. So to me, it's like trying to prevent something that's already there is not a good enough reason. Let's think of something else. I mean, it's not that that's not a complication we should think about, but the idea that it's this guiding light from this principle is hugely problematic to me. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. 
They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I don't disagree with you about that. And I don't, I don't feel like we're in disagreement. I think I'm just advocating for a process that we do think through all of the consequences because a lot of what we're seeing here, and this is the part of President Trump that is impossible to get through accurately and precisely with criminal law, but that is so disturbing. And I think this is going to continue to be true because of the sophistication of what foreign governments are doing. So you can look at it and say, President Trump did not sit down with Russians and make an agreement to get himself elected. You can also be 
almost certain, given his economic relationships, trying to build this tower in Moscow and the way he conducted himself in Helsinki and the way he talks about President Putin, that he is not operating at arm's length from Russia. Now, maybe the public is cool with that because all of this was pretty obvious during the campaign, too. Right. The public heard him talk about Vladimir Putin, how nice it would be for us to have a different relationship with Russia. Enough people in the right states voted for him and and we arguably elected that policy. I disagree with that, but I take your point. <laughs> what do you mean you disagree with that? I mean, that's just what happened factually. No, but it's not like that was a referendum on his relationship with Russia to to boil the election down to, well, he said this and we all voted for him in any way. I mean, again, even with your side note of, you know, enough people and enough. I mean, I just it's not true. Like, I mean, more people voted for her. It was super complicated. It wasn't like it was just a referendum on that issue. There were a million other things going on. And so I think taking any sort of leadership or sort of policy initiative or even direction from the fact that he did this and was still elected is just I don't I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what happened. I think it was a mess of an election where the dude who didn't get the most votes became president. So there's not much you can take from it. Honestly, except for our process is jacked up and the media is jacked up. It's always a mess of an election though. And this is this I think you just got to the heart of my concern. My concern is rolling forward. Are we always going to be able to find the reason that this election wasn't exactly legitimate, the reason that this person is too heavily influenced by foreign leaders? I mean, you think about what China is building out in terms of its approach to bringing our intelligence folks over to China's side and sharing our information we have a very complicated world out there, and I think there will there will be lots of threads for future investigators to follow in terms of who is influencing our leadership. And I find Donald Trump abhorrent. I don't want anyone to listen to this conversation and think I'm standing here in defense of Donald Trump. I don't. My question is, are we better off long term having him defeated through an election or having him removed from office by the Congress. And I think that's a really hard decision. But if we are always having a conversation where two of us sitting here can't agree about whether an election was a real election or not, whether the people knew something or they didn't know it, that's a really bad place for American democracy to be. And and I want to avoid that. I guess my point is we're already there. What that election shows to me is that our process is not working. And the fact that he continued to commit crimes, obstruction of justice, while in office means our process is not working. And so I think democracy is not, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be the democracy in peril person, but they're not working. We're not getting the results we should. The fact that we even have to have this, the fact that Donald Trump is president, much less that we have to have these conversations, is not indicative of some super problematic thing about Donald Trump. It's that he got through and the process in a lot of ways is broken. And to me, that's the that to me is I, I don't need to to it's not really about whether the election was legitimate or not. It's just that this broken process keeps we keep finding different manifestations of a broken process. And so what's the answer to that? Change the process. In what ways, though? Tell me what you would do 
I mean, I hear everybody saying, well, the answer is we get rid of the Electoral College and we just go to the popular vote. Okay, let's say we do that. Are we really going to eliminate these kinds of issues by eliminating the electoral process? I don't think we are. I think ranked choice voting is a fantastic idea. Sign me up. I'm ready to do that at the federal and state levels. I don't think that gets us through these kinds of issues. I mean, if we are so stuck in believing that everyone is acting from partisan motives all the time, I don't know what process changes help us move forward through that. See, I think we're like circling around this this in different ways. It's, yes, I do want to eliminate the Electoral College, and I do think that would help them things. I also want to change the policy. It's just a policy at the Department of Justice. We don't need Congress to do anything. It's just a policy. In the policy, you can be indicted as a sitting president. Done. Like, I think shifting that narrative of the continued expansion of executive power gets to both. I mean, I think the Electoral College is an issue with volume one, one solution to address volume one. Changing the policy at the Department of Justice is a big solution to volume two of the Mueller report. What I hear you saying is the problem with changing the process is we doubt each other's motives. And what I'm saying is we doubt each other's motives because the process is messed up. And I don't know which one of us is right. I think we both are. I mean, I think we both are, right? And that's why this is so hard to solve. I don't think there are any easy solutions here, but sometimes I feel frustrated because I feel like it becomes the solution is so hard and we all just stand around looking at each other and being like, well, the problem's really big and the solution's all hard and twiddling our thumbs. I don't want to do that anymore. We have some really messed up processes and systems in the United States. Our democracy is not infallible. Our constitution is not infallible. And so it's time to update some things. And that's what I would like to do. And I would like to do that to an extent as well, keeping in mind that this is a table that has been set beautifully for authoritarianism. And I want to make sure as we start to think about our processes that we don't further set that table for authoritarianism. Because when everybody says the process isn't working, the process has failed, We, as a public, start to believe, well, the right person is what we need now to fix this. And I just want to be very careful about that. That's kind of an interesting segue to what's on our mind outside of politics, which is Avengers Endgame. And if you've not seen it yet, this would be a good time to hit pause and come back later after you have seen it. I don't understand spoiler alerts for Avengers Endgame. I feel like what was going to happen, everybody should have known if you've seen a single Marvel Universe film, in particular the Iron Man. I'm just saying. I feel like everybody's super sensitive about this. It's disrespectful to spoil a movie, I think, especially one that we've all been waiting for for 11 years. We've been working our way towards this for a very long time. Even if you believe what happened is predictable, people should know They're going to hear what has happened and be able to opt out, I think. I guess. I just think it's so funny to me. I I respect the sensitivity about spoilers. (laughs) So what did you think about Avengers Endgame? Well, I think it's an interesting extension of the conversation we were just having in a way because what I love that Marvel did with Infinity War and now Endgame is present a villain with kind of good intentions, right? That. You have this villain who's saying, 
hey, everybody, the universe cannot sustain itself on its current course. And so I am going to roll back what the universe has to sustain. And I thought it was so interesting in this movie to see the vision of Earth once that had been done, to see how beautiful the scenery became, right? And all of the ways in which you could see real devastation and emotional trauma, but positive effects of what Thanos did. Where did you see those? We must have been watching a different movie. Like, think about where Iron Man was living. Like, there were tons Mm. of scenes that were just lush and green and beautiful. And I thought, wow, like, they are really saying something here that we have this horrific way of getting to a somewhat more sustainable universe. I don't know. I just I thought it was really smart and really interesting. I really liked the turn Thanos took where he basically said, oh, I can't leave anybody behind or you will constantly be trying. You will know what was lost. And so you'll constantly be trying to get back to that. Did you ever watch The Leftovers on HBO? Mm Mm-mm. I mean, it's it's my husband was obsessed with the show. It's a very similar storyline, which is a percentage of the population just disappears and nobody knows why and what happens. It's a really interesting experiment and thought process on trauma and grief and what happens to those of us, you know, left behind when we lose people. And it's a very intimate film for the last, you know, for the first Good Lord, it's so long, like two hours, because you're really just up close and personal with all these characters and the different ways they dealt with that loss, particularly enjoyed Big Lebowski Thor. I thought he was hilarious and sad and also hilarious. And I thought all of that was interesting. I did think some of the once we started to to work through how we're going to fix it, as we like to do, as we like to do in the United States, fix things, it got a little a little loose around the edges. There were some parts where I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Now, I did think they were really funny about the way they laughed at themselves about the time travel stuff. But there were parts where I was like, guys, like this, <laughs> this is not working out right. I don't know how any of this makes sense. You just mean the quantum stuff. Yeah. And just I don't understand. I, I, I think I fundamentally don't buy the snap them back five years in the future. I feel like if you're going to snap them back, they're going to come back at the moment they disappeared. That was my biggest plot problem with Endgame. And so if they if you have to go back to that point in time and snap them back at that point, the problem I can see why they didn't do that is because then you don't have anybody new, particularly Tony Stark's daughter. And so all the five years are a loss. But I guess I just didn't. At the end of the day, I'm like, I don't buy. I don't buy that you could just snap them back five years into the future. If you snap them back, they're going to come back at the point they disappeared because I'm obviously an expert in quantum physics. Yeah, I did not try to think too deeply about the mechanics of the the quantum movement. But they, the that film. was such a plot point. It they was talked about point, that yeah. all the time. It was hilarious. Is everything you know from Back to the Future? I love that part. I did. I thought I I that is one of my favorite things about Marvel. How it's kind of constantly exploring some pretty intense subject matters while at the same time being like, this is a comic book. You know, <laughs> lighten up, everybody. I also had a little bit of problem with some of the treatment of the female characters. It feels like, and I know you're not watching Game of Thrones, but I keep thinking about Kathy Griffin and how she was like, a lot of things have changed in Hollywood, but the guys still signing the checks are still old white guys. And it felt like 
with, with both Endgame and some of the plot lines in Game of Thrones. It's just this, well, the men are still in charge, but we're going to throw y'all some bones, okay? So don't get mad. We're not going to let you, you know, direct Avengers Endgame, but we will throw you some really fun moments as a woman, and that should be good enough for all the sexism in the comic industry up to this point and the fact that we're not actually going to put you in positions of power in the movie industry. And it just, I didn't dig it. Like when they, I don't understand why Captain Marvel couldn't just kill him. She's like a nuclear weapon. I don't understand. Like she would just kill him. I know that's not a very fun movie, but this and the and the idea that like oh the women are going to back her up. I thought that was kind of annoying. There were parts where I was like rolling my eyes. Chad was really annoyed about that too because he was like, "Look at her. She's so powerful. She does not need their help, right? She, she does not. And she, she can get need, through that she crowd just by done herself. It. It's so silly. <laughs> or the Scarlet Witch. Why couldn't she have just taken him out? That also seems believable. Well, I think that it showed you the eleven years of progress here that. They they really couldn't just have Captain Marvel come in and take care of it. Because then why did we watch all these other movies? Right? <laughs> why did we get so invested in Robert Downey Jr.? Come on. <laughs> and I am. I am very invested in him. I like the Iron Man's are some of my favorite. And listen, I didn't even like Captain Marvel. Didn't think that movie was good. But I just again, I, I'm I'm trying to apply a probably more rational logic. To this universe that involves magic stones and monsters and aliens, then I should, and I take that point. It just there was a there's a moment in Game of Thrones which is like famous. It's famous for its rapiness and its shitty treatment of women. And then this episode where they knighted one of the long term female characters that everybody loves, and it just felt like y'all feel y'all are, y'all aren't mad at us anymore now, right? We can do whatever we want, and this is cool. Okay, good. It just it's so it's so transparent and it's annoying and i it's like i want to praise the progress but also i keep i also heard a interview recently with carmen esposito on the podcast going through it which is good y'all should definitely listen to it and she was saying how often lesbian plot lines are like they got married and then like they die or whatever happens she's like because there's just nobody in the room that can tell you what happens next? Like, you need a lesbian in the room to say, like, okay, let me put some dimension around what happens next in this plot line after lesbians get married. Like, you just, it's hard to invent. And so if the, the writing room is not diverse, that's what happens. And I thought, oh, that's so good. I never even really thought about that before. And I just feel like maybe they needed more writers in the room to be like, this is what happens when you're a superhero and a woman. Okay, maybe not that. But you know what I mean? Like, I just, it feels always so just a little one note and it's annoying. Do you feel that way about Star Wars? Yes. I mean, I just don't like Star Wars, period. I think it's not awesome. But yeah, it's just it feels like a peace offering instead of a real invitation to the table. I mean, I hear you on all of that. I think for me, I take all of your points about the depiction of women in these movies and about the silliness of many of the plot lines. Totally agree. I also just appreciate that they played such a long game with this. Chad and I went back and watched a couple of the movies and all of the stingers before we went to see it. And there's real craftsmanship here, you know, yeah, and it's that. just and, I do and like I that was part. emotional about the characters, which is so ridiculous. But then I thought, no, I've got like a decade with these people. Of course, I feel a little bit emotional mm-hmm. about it. And uh, I I kind of refuse to not enjoy it. You know, that's where I am on Endgame. I, I thought there was some really good work done and I appreciate it. And I'm excited for whatever the next epic tale from Marvel is going to look like. 
No, I'm really sad. My friend Leslie, they watched all of them beforehand. I really wish I'd done that because I think part of the the enjoyment of those movies, too, is the Easter eggs and the throwbacks. And you just have to refresh your memory, man. I haven't seen the only ones I haven't seen are the Ant-Man or Doctor Strange ones. And I really want to go back and watch those. I don't know why I didn't. Paul Rudd is such a gift to humanity. But I totally agree with that. And I think just being invited to the club and understanding the universe, it, it was enjoyable. I also made the mistake we made at Captain Marvel, and I went and saw it in 3D. And I always feel like I'm looking, watching them through a freaking, like, telescope. You know what I mean? Like, oh, man, I don't know how I missed that and accidentally bought 3D tickets. But it's like they're darker. Literally, the screen is darkened by the 3D glasses. Such a bummer. I kind of want to go 3D. back and see I totally, it. I just want I us to stop doing that. I, I mean, I kind of want to go back and see it, but man, it's three hours is a lot, and there's so many, so much good content right now. Especially Netflix is like cranking it out. My friend and I watched the Brené Brown special on Netflix. Have you watched it yet? No, I haven't. It's so good. Very different than Avengers Endgame, <laughs> but delightful in its own way. Well, I loved Doctor Strange, so I'm interested to hear what you think about that. And if I were, what's his name, Benedict? Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. I would go around the rest of my life flashing that little one that he did. I thought that was one of the best moments in the movie. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, it was good. Thank you all for joining us for a lengthy episode of Fancy Politics. We appreciate your attention today as we work through some very difficult issues. We're looking forward to you continuing that conversation with us. We'll be back on Friday with Sarah's interview. You can learn more about representation of women in politics. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.